0: I'd like to talk about right effort, the driving force of our practice. Right effort is, is one of the most crucial factors on the practice path. One could speak of the great art of skillful and effective practice. What is important is the predicate right. Effort itself is ethically neutral. Right effort always means an effort towards the wholesome. Right effort, also enthusiastic effort, wise energy, skillful perseverance, is described as follows. It's a force that supports, bears, strengthens what is wholesome in the mind. Just as an old house is supported by new pillars, so the mental factors present in our minds are supported by right effort. Just as a powerful reinforcement allows an army to maintain its position rather than back down, So, right effort strengthens and supports the accompanying wholesome qualities in the mind. Right effort is also one of the five so-called spiritual faculties of the Indriyas and one of the seven so-called qualities of awakening, Bojangha. The last one we looked at was joy, if you remember In a text it is stated that right effort should be regarded as the root of all realization. I think that's an impressive statement. We must take seriously if we want to make progress on the path. Shantideva wrote about the perfection of inner qualities, the paramitas. If one has developed... Generosity, ethical conduct and patience. One should then strengthen enthusiastic effort for only in this way one will awaken. Just as no movement arises without wind, no liberating mental qualities arise without effort. And I'm going to repeat quite a few times what we've already repeated quite a few times, but it might be useful. Right effort does not imply that we try to change our present experience, improving it, making it more pleasant or less unpleasant so that it gets the way we want it to be. That's not right effort. But usually it's difficult for us to hear this, let alone apply it. We are somehow subconsciously convinced that we meditate, maybe consciously convinced that we meditate in order to get rid of the unpleasant and get mostly pleasant states. But it is precisely this that does not work in this life in general. Rather, right effort is what it takes to be alert and mindful of the experience of this present moment and to sustain that contact as much as possible. In such a kind of effort, the principle of non-violence within meditation becomes visible. Liberation does not come from struggle and conflict, not from reaching out or wanting to get rid of, But rather from interest as exploration, loving care, clear seeing, understanding, accepting, and letting go. Essentially it is a well-balanced effort, perhaps like be compared to a surfer, you know, that's clearly present and not distracted, relaxed and not tight. It's at least how they look to me. Means we are trying to find the point of balance. And because it is all a dynamic process, we have to find the balance again and again and again, from moment to moment. Apparently there was this uh, advertising poster in California, you know, huge pacific wave on a surfboard on in the so-called tree asana upright, elegant attitude on one leg stands the Indian guru and yogi Sachitananda almond eye, chocolate brown with waving long black hair under the picture there's the inscription I mean, he's on the wave, right? Surfing the wave. You cannot, you cannot stop the wave, but you can learn to ride it. Meditate with Swami Sachitananda. <laughs> what we often keep on trying is to stop the wave, or make it smaller, or bigger, or steer it in a different direction. Very exhausting. Sadov writes, It takes continuous effort, but no exertion. It's interesting, the difference. It, says it takes no exertion. When expectations are there, or if you want to achieve something specific, the mind needs too much energy. Do not let it be either tense nor limp. Yet perhaps it's not even really about finding the middle, you know, in between those two. Rather it's about giving up or letting go of the extremes. So it's not so much the middle between inertia and overexertion that we aspire to. Rather it means to be neither tense nor sluggish. This of course requires that we're really attentive to the quality of the effort our tendency is sometimes to be grim or tense then next moment however we can be quite lazy or be exhausted from overexertion because we tried so hard balance free of extremes means instead of tense and grim we are relaxed and inwardly light and gentle. But that again does not mean weak, lazy or sloppy. But awake and alert. So often relaxed is misinterpreted as a license for indolence, for bequemlichkeit. I think relaxation is very important. But it is above all the relaxation that arises if we do not get something other than the experience that is present at this moment. It's not mostly about sitting or lying around comfortably. I mean, that can also be understood by relaxation. It's really an inward attitude. Properly applied meditation can become a gentle yet precise dance, quite alive and dynamic. The following pairs of words may look like opposites at first glance, but actually they describe exactly this freedom of extremes and thus the optimal inner attitude and practice. Something like relaxed care, Unconcerned interest, gentle steadfastness, loving determination, flexible imperturbability, as many of this. And short relaxed interest and gentle consistency are the best in their attitudes, in formal practice as much as in daily life. For example, when anger arises, one might think that one should be able to replace it with calm. We shouldn't be angry, so we have to do something to replace it. That's, again, not really being willing to be with the present experience. Practicing correctly means that, as far as we can, we connect with the feeling of anger, if possible, in the body, in a compassionate way, so as to be able to look and feel what is happening to it. We feel how it is, how it feels, and then look what happens to it. If I'm not trying to get rid of it, or to do anything to it, except feeling, watching, observing it. That's often not easy, because the anger may become even stronger for a while. You know, when it becomes stronger, that's when we see that we actually, and it's okay, then we see we're doing what we're supposed to do. If it gets stronger and we don't like it and we think we did something wrong, it means we had some hidden agenda. It becomes stronger for a while and then it may pass away. Only to grab us again, you know, the same thoughts come up again and there it comes back. The helpful thing is to, to do is to remain in touch with the whole process. This empowers us to be present and reasonably equanimous even with quite difficult experiences. If on the other hand feelings of joy and delight appear in the mind, One might think that one must now be able to maintain them for as long as possible, or one would like to extend them as long as possible, which is understandable. But practicing correctly means being present with the joy, feeling and seeing what continues to happen to it. It may become stronger, it may stay the same or disappear right away, what it really takes is to stay in contact. Again, this empowers us to be present with wished-for, pleasant experiences without immediately falling into attachment or desire. This is exactly what allows us to see more clearly and deeply that all experiences, all of them, both desired and the undesired arise due to causes and conditions that eventually pass away by themselves. The pleasant ones, the unpleasant ones, the neutral ones, they arise because conditions are there. When conditions fall apart, they disappear. Traditional is the Buddha's description of the right effort as the four great efforts. He described them in the Satya Vibhanga Sutta as follows. What is right effort? If you make an effort, if you arouse perseverance, if you endeavor to generate the intention not to create unwholesome mind states that have not yet arisen. To give up the unwholesome mind states that have already arisen in the mind. To generate wholesome mind states that have not yet arisen in the mind. To preserve, to strengthen and bring to fullness and perfection the wholesome mind states that have already arisen in the mind. This is called right effort. More specific, first one is not to allow the unwholesome, such as desire or aversion or worry or envy or conceit and so forth, that have not yet arisen in the mind to arise. It's good to be quite clear on the fact that if we do not want desire to arise within us, You know, especially interesting here during retreats, because we can observe it so well. We do not go to places of which we already know that they will arouse desire in us. Now, that's not here, but outside there, whatever it may be, you know. If we don't want desire, some of us don't go to the media market. Others might go there and (laughs) bring up desire to the car exhibition or to the shop of Asian Buddhist junk or the pastry shop or the red light district, whatever. All this we don't go to. Nor do we devote ourselves to dwelling on thoughts and fantasies which will cause desire, and envy or anger within. That's an interesting option here, you know mind goes and we think, oh that might be nice or we get caught in some old story and it brings up anger do not do that to drop that as soon as we are aware of it secondly to give up unwholesome states which have already arisen in the mind it means not to feed resentment or envy or desire and the like when it is in the mind but to not to give it energy, but to let it go when it has arisen in the mind. Thirdly, is to generate not yet arisen wholesome states, such as kindness, compassion, is what we did last week, joy, generosity, equanimity, liberating wisdom, that's what we're up to this week. For example, if we know that Being with like-minded Dharma friends or teachers motivates us towards the wholesome. We seek them out. It's going into situations from which we know that they will bring up wholesome qualities. And number four is to continue to cultivate and strengthen wholesome qualities which are already present in the mind. Say if we find, for example, that we are in a generosity mode we apply this generosity by acting on it instead of waiting for the phase to pass it's maybe not so easy here but in daily life to see when there are wholesome qualities in the mind to act on them I think first we should try to achieve the goal of the fourfold effort through mindful awareness. That's the best way. For whenever there is real, correct, properly understood mindful awareness, inner clarity and balance arise. That doesn't mean that the difficulties or the unpleasant goes away, but we're clear about what is happening. And then the negative emotions will be slowly weakened, We're not trying to change anything, but to make contact with what is there. Right effort means, once again, just as much effort as it takes to contact the current experience with right mindful awareness. That is, with an interested, non-judgmental, clear presence. This is already a wholesome attitude. Even there might still be aversion or desire when we bring this attitude in there. Change already takes place. And I think it's always good to remember what non-judgmental means. As soon as we think this is not okay, this shouldn't be here. The mindfulness we bring in is already a judgmental one with the intention to change or get rid of. We feel that unwholesome states of mind ultimately feel irritating and highly unpleasant when we really feel and look and therefore let them go quite easily. We feel that wholesome states bring a sense of connectedness and spaciousness inside and therefore will much easier turn towards them in a full way. That way we can put into practice the four aspects of right effort. Sometimes, however, mindful awareness is not enough to keep out unwholesome states, to let them go when they are already there. Then it can be helpful to call up previously cultivated qualities, such as metta, compassion. Generosity, or others, in order to to contain the unwholesome, or to surround it, can surround it with with wholesome attitude. Not to get rid of them, but we hold ourselves, and we don't struggle and fight. We're present with the accepting attitude. Only works if we're not judgmental about what it what is going on. What's also better than getting lost and staying lost in the unwholesome is changing the channel when we notice. Instead of getting lost in a chain of thoughts of desire, we switch to wholesome thoughts or to neutral ones or to objects such as breathing or neutral body sensations or whatever is helpful and at least neutral or maybe wholesome. So much on applying the fourfold effort. Next point is enthusiastic effort and urgency. And there again, there's a little bit of a danger, you know, it sounds already again like we're, now we're going to do it, get it right. Or we may think we never manage that because sometimes joyful or even enthusiastic effort is mentioned in the text. A well-known illustration gives a sense of what this might look like and I'm sure most of you will practice that way. It says bodhisattvas or practitioners, they throw themselves into practice like elephants plagued by heat and dust Throwing themselves into a cool lake with joy and enthusiasm. Isn't it how you come into the hall? How you go out into the walking space? I'm sure. There's another image which illustrates the urgency from which right effort can arise. It says we must practice as if our hair were on fire with determination and energy. From a strictly Buddhist point of view, it is. Because as long as we get lost in in this world of suffering, it's like our hair being on fire. Of course, we don't notice it so much. Effort and energy is very much needed, as Keshire explains in his uh, Mind and Its Function. It says, if a mountainside with dry grass catches fire, the fire will not spread until a strong enough wind blows. In the same way, the fire of liberating knowledge will not burn the unwholesome mental qualities until This insight is well fanned by the wind of enthusiastic effort. Geschrapp describes three types of enthusiastic effort. The three are the respective counterparts to the three types of laziness or indolence or bequemlichkeit. The first is simply an enthusiastic effort, watchful, energetic state of mind, which counteracts the first kind of lethargy or laziness. This is a dull mental quality which lacks any interest in the Dharma and which prefers to sink into a lethargic state. Not real interest in the Dharma and then it doesn't really matter in what state it drops because it's not specially helpful. And it's secondly a wholesome enthusiastic effort that is based on self-confidence. That's an interesting one. Self-confidence which overcomes self-pity and feelings of inferiority. These manifest in thoughts like, I am so incompetent, I probably can never gain any insights, let alone liberation. It is unnecessary weakness based on disrespect for one's own potential. The joy of the wholesome is the third enthusiastic effort that overcomes Interest in the unwholesome This third kind of laziness I find very interesting, especially for us today. It is interest in the unwholesome which is often confused with right effort. Because one makes an effort, but for something that is not necessarily wholesome or meaningful. Many of the efforts we make to achieve secular goals are, from the point of view of dharma practice, considered to be forms of laziness, indolence, even we may work hard on it. For example, all the effort it takes to to acquire nice housing, special food, pretty clothing, entertainment, distractions of any kind, or the striving for prestige, for success, and so forth to name just a few. This last point gives us perhaps a very different, challenging, or even somewhat shocking perspective on what could be meant by real Dharma practice. We may not even like it. was, by the way, the one on the far end is Gashirap. The the perfect role model in this regard. In all these years we spent with him, no one has ever seen him in non-dharmic activities. It's just not his thing, ever. Actually, he was not physically not well, so the doctor told him he had to go for a walk every day. He found that really difficult in the beginning. It's such a waste of time until he found out that in the walk he could practice, of course, also. Walking meditation is not the Tibetan-style practice. These are the three kinds of enthusiastic effort. Energy, self-confidence, and joy in the wholesome. Next is perseverance and continuity. Effort also means perseverance and continuity in the practice, from moment to moment. No one can practice for us, just as it would not help if someone took a language course in our place. We have to do it ourselves, that would be a great thing, you know. I would have people do Tibetan language courses, Spanish language courses, Italian We have to do it ourselves. What perseverance and continuity could possibly mean is shown by the following event. You know, the wonderful, uh, highly realized Indian Vipassana woman master, Dipama, apparently once said to Joseph Goldstein, Why don't you meditate for two days for once? Joseph who was used to meditate for weeks and months in retreat was a little surprised by this suggestion until he it turned out that Deepama meant sitting two whole days without getting up. (laughs) Probably a bit too much for all of us. Definitely for me. Don't know about Joseph. Perseverance sometimes is compared to the steady gait of the big elephant. Our practice is not about hurrying somewhere or struggling, but it is also not to stroll or creep along, occasionally taking a step forward here or there. Rather, we go forward with the steady pace of the great elephant, undeterred with perseverance. One must have seen an elephant walking to understand this image. The elephant of the Mahant, that's a local prince in Bokaya, India, was an impressive example of this. The elephant could be heard coming from afar, recognizable by the rhythmic sound of his bell. He had a bell hanging on the side. Tutung. Tutung when he would stride through the indescribable tangle of the bazaar, the chaotic mess of trucks, of pilgrims, of goats, of rickshaws, of guys carrying huge loads of dogs, of buses, of bakers, of engine noise and shouting and stench. His pace was undeterred, even dignified somehow, and without a single moment of hesitation, He wasn't walking like, you know, he was not fast, not slow, just badang, badang, badang. Somehow there was always just enough space in front of him. Of course, it may be easier if you're an elephant. (laughs) But that's the image. Why... Perseverance and continuity are important in practices, I believe, quite obvious. In order to allow for calm, for clarity and insight to arise in heart and mind, we need steadiness, we need perseverance. Once more, the good old example, you probably have heard it twice here, many times before. If we wish to bring water to boiling to set the hot plate to the maximum from time to time, just to turn it off again after a while, will never bring the water to boil. It does not need to be set to the absolute maximum heat, but it must stay turned on continuously. Zeta Uttachaniya writes, that's by the way, the monk all the way on this end over there. The meaning of right effort is to try to be continuous in awareness, to be patient and to be relaxed. It doesn't take too much energy to be aware. Remember to the bring the attention to the hand. It doesn't take too much energy to be aware. It takes no force, but constant effort, constant right effort. so much on perseverance and continuity. Determination. Endurance, effort often goes together with determination. The effort and determination of the Buddha is impressively illustrated by the resolution he took when he sat under the tree of enlightenment. After years of practice, he vowed that even if my flesh dries up, leaving only skin and bones, I'll not leave this place until I have found the way to the end of all suffering. That's what he did. For us, similar moments or situations may arise in our practice though we probably won't approach them as radical as the Buddha. Still, the questions arise. Do we really want to practice consistently, even when it's difficult, tedious or boring? Or do we opt for a more entertaining way of going through the day, especially when we get bored? Do we really want to practice qualities such as generosity and kindness, compassion, serenity in our daily life? If so, are we really doing it? Do we want to meditate every day? If so, are we really doing it? In order to be able to pull through the decisiveness, it takes willingness to continually be present with what is, whether wished for or dreaded, and to regard both as ideal opportunities for practice. In that way, whatever happens between right now and next Saturday in the retreat, You know, it goes up, it goes down, it's difficult, it's boring, it's interesting. Each of these situations and moments, ideal opportunities for practice if we feel like taking them. I'll read you a story about decisiveness, perseverance and continuity. I think mostly perseverance and continuity. It's called the Daffodil. Principle, daffodils are not or Narzissen. Several times my daughter had called me to say, Mother, you must come to see the daffodils before they are over. On her third call, I finally drove there. We turned into a small gravel road and I saw a small church. On the far side of the church, I saw a hand-lettered sign with an arrow that read, daffodil garden we got out of the car down the path then as we turned the corner I looked up and I gasped before me lay the most glorious sight it looked as though someone had taken a great vat of gold and poured it over the mountain peak and its surrounding slopes The daffodil flowers were planted in majestic swirling patterns, great ribbons and swaths of deep orange, creamy white, lemon yellow, salmon pink and saffron and butter yellow. Each different colored variety was planted in large groups and each one swirled and flowed like a river with its own unique hue. There were five acres of flowers. I guess it's that's 2,000 quadratmeter. Who did this? asked Caroline. Just one woman, she answered. She lives on the property. That's her home. Caroline pointed to a well-kept A-frame house, small and modestly sitting in the midst of all that glory. We walked up to the house, On the patio, we saw a poster. Answers to the questions I know you want to ask. That was the headline. The first answer was a simple one. 50,000 bolts. The second answer was, One at a time by one woman. Two hands, two feet, and one brain. The third answer was, began in 1958. For me, that moment was a life-changing experience. I thought of this woman whom I had never met, who more than 40 years before had begun, one bulb at a time, to bring her vision of beauty and joy to obscure mountain top, planting, one bulb at a time, year after year, This woman had forever changed the world in which she lived. One day at a time, she had created something of extraordinary magnificence, beauty and inspiration. What her daffodil garden taught is one of the greatest principles of celebration. That is, learning to move towards our goals one step at a time often just one baby step at a time, and learning to love the doing, learning to use the accumulation of time. When we multiply tiny pieces of time with moment after moment effort, we too will find we can accomplish magnificent things. We can change the world. Perseverance, step by step, moment to moment the next point here is courage right effort also includes courage for example the courage to question everything in the practice to explore our limits to question our habits and to cross, cut through and change them every so often Right effort requires the courage to confront and to feel what is here, even when it's unpleasant. This requires a great great deal of seriousness, and even unconditional commitment and unreserved dedication. This, of course, does not mean that we should measure ourselves against high ideals. And turn Dharma practice and meditation into a hopeless struggle for perfection. We do that sometimes. We think it's not good enough. Or we hear those stories and we think we should be much further on or much better. It's excessive demands on ourselves. Not helpful. Without severity or harshness we can look at resistances, really feel them, Not stubbornly or grimly, but quite precisely and at the same time in a relaxed way. But look, go there, feel. A colleague of mine experienced great difficulties in his retreat practice. He said, quote, that during weeks pain and fears dominated his meditation experiences. At the worst moment, the word courage suddenly appeared in his mind. It repeated itself, almost like a mantra. Every time the word appeared, he felt his heart grow stronger until the last, deepest place of fear and resistance against what happened and which had kept him apart from the immediate experience dissolved. What had just been unbearable became completely acceptable. Courage does not mean looking for a better condition, rather it's the boldness of being truly present. The last point I want to mention is fearlessness. In fact, I think this is also about courage in some way. Because most of the time we have no control on whether we're afraid or not. You know, we can't decide we're not afraid when we are. And Ms. Smith described an interesting experience she had with Dipama. She wrote, Dipama and I sat on a plane from India to the USA. Suddenly we met with enormous turbulence and suddenly the plane hit an air hole and dropped downwards in a dramatic manner. Drinks and other items flew up to the ceiling before finally the plane returned to more stable air masses. I must have been screaming. Deepama sat on the opposite side of the aisle. Quietly, she stretched out her hand, took hold of mine and held it. Then she whispered, Daughters of the Buddha are fearless. Of course, fear also has an important or several important practical functions. I'd say when we walk on the road and hear motor noises, even if we're very mindful and concentrated yogis, it probably makes sense to step aside and leave the road to the approaching car instead of carefully looking, you know, at the, the fear in the mind. When the house burns, it is better to listen to the fear and leave the house as quickly as possible instead of inwardly thinking fear, fear, fear. In many cases, however, it is very liberating to look carefully and attentively at our minds and to look whether the thoughts are adequate and realistic or whether they are all down patterns that impose fear and limitations on us which ne- may not be necessary justified at all. How much about courage and fearlessness. Finally, I would like to briefly tell a story about my Bengali. Vipassana teacher on Nagarika Munindra. I think it's also Carol's teacher. Yeah, and my teacher. Is the man in white there on one of those pictures? That would be Munindraji. I'm sometimes hesitant to tell the stories because it might give a sense of how we should be, you know, like the story of before. It's just I like the story because it's very impressive, and here's this kind of rather short, not at all very impressive person. It's even more surprising and, and inspiring to hear. It's again about decisiveness, about atitana which is closely related to Right Effort. This is more or less a quote. Munindraji, who was also the teacher of Deepama and Joseph Goldstein, had hoped for half of his life he was Indian, Bengali, that he would finally be able to do a very long meditation retreat under competent guidance. In the India of his time, there was no Buddhist practice Buddhist practice in India has more or less died out uh at the time of the Mughals, around the year thousand. When the retreat he wanted to do finally became possible in the retreat center of Mahasi Sayado, a famous Vipassana meditation master in Yangon, Burma. Maninjuji made the following experience during His first days there, he had great trouble with the sitting meditation, and chairs were absolutely no option. Because of strong rheumatic pains, he was hardly able to sit still for half an hour. For him, this was extremely difficult to accept, now that his chance had finally come. And he was by no means certain that such an opportunity would ever come up again for him. So it was quite intense. One day Mahasi Sayadaw told him about the student who had just sat in meditation for nine hours solid. Manindra felt that he had to do the same no matter what. So the next morning he sat down for meditation and vowed to just remain sitting. He said that during the first two hours he experienced excruciating, unbearable pain. But after more seemingly endless time, the pains gradually faded and his mind became very peaceful. And he felt as if he were floating in the air, enveloped by steady steadily increasing, powerful light. This lasted up until the evening. Very impressive. When Munindra reported this experience to Mahasi Sayadaw the next morning, the Sayadaw advised him, caringly but laconically, to simply continue with his practice. Go on. It's a story about heroic effort, about courage and really about determination. Also one that shows the experiences Munindra had were fantastic but his teacher immediately made it clear that the goal is not pleasant or fantastic experiences. Even if they are super impressive, the goal is true liberation from self-created inner suffering, which Muninjurji, by the way, achieved within a few months. A short version of his Little advertising. Short version of his life story can be read in my book uh, "Buddhas Tausend Gesichter." It's interesting to read them. You can borrow it from the library. I'd like to close with the following verse by Lama Tsongkhapa, which sums up the essence of Dharma practice: by strapping the mind to the boat of listening. Reflecting and meditating on the teachings, and through hoisting the sail of the extraordinary wish, the altruistic, compassionate motivation of bodhicitta for the welfare of many, propelled by the wind of persistent, joyful effort, may we free all living beings from the ocean of this stressful existence. Thank you.